it's a brutal game, freelancing. If you don't pitch, you don't get stories. Especially at the beginning, you have to pitch hard, often, constantly. But when it pays off, it pays off really well. And I can't tell you the number of times that I cold pitched an editor and got a job out of it. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today I'm speaking with Rachel Lees, a writer, editor and content producer with more than 15 years' experience in magazines and television. Rachel is an absolute go-getter who's never been afraid to chase her career dreams or embrace new adventures, from moving cities to moving countries to heading off on assignment to far-flung corners of the globe, usually travelling on her own and with her trusty camera in tow. Rachel only recently returned to Australia after six years of living and working in Singapore, where she navigated expat life with her hubby and their two little dogs. It was during her time in Singapore that she set out to establish herself as a freelance travel writer, and she's now in demand with some of the top travel publications in the world. I should also mention that Rach and I actually worked together many moons ago, when we were both working in women's magazines. So today's conversation is part interview, part catch-up. Here's my chat with Rachel Lees. So Rachel, it's lovely to be catching up with you today. Let's start with how you first got into magazines, because that was a bit of a dream job back in the day. So what was your first magazine job and how did you manage to land it? So my first magazine job was with B Magazine. It was a women's lifestyle um, title and I landed the job of editorial assistant. I've had always wanted to work in magazines, but particularly from the age of about 15, I had bought a copy of Girlfriend and Dolly magazine for my 15th birthday, read them cover to cover, and then I flipped (laughs) back to the masthead, the page where they have the staff details and where the magazine is. And, um, And I thought, wow, it's in Sydney. And I was living in Melbourne and I announced to my mum, I'm going to move to Sydney and work in magazines one day. And she was like, okay, darling. (laughs) And you were what age, did you say? I was 15 then. Okay. And so I had just come back from London when I was 19 and I had bought a copy of B Magazine because it was the same size as Glamour in the UK. That's right. And and I thought, oh, what's this? I'd never heard of it before. And they had a winner job at B Magazine competition. So I applied for the the competition and didn't win. That went to a lovely writer, now editor, called Lisa Thomas, who's fabulous. Oh, yes. Um, and I ended up working with her down the track, sidebar. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I applied for the job, didn't get it, but did get offered work experience. And so I, I contacted them to organise it. The earliest they could get me in was November the next year. But this this had been my dream for so long. So I thought, well, that gives me a chance to save the airfare, save up for a hotel. <laughs> and so I flew myself up to Sydney for one week. And um, I, I thought for this one week, you know, going to stay in a nice hotel that's walking distance from work. And this may be my only chance ever to work in magazines. So I'm not doing work experience. For this week, I'm working in magazines. Mm. And on the Thursday, the then features editor said but there's a, a entry-level job going. It was Lisa's job. She'd been promoted into another role. Um, would you like to apply? Right. And so that, the rest is history. <laughs> My goodness. So you went for work experience yeah. and got a job. Yeah. It was luck luck and timing and, you know, obviously 
yeah. showing the right gumption at the right moment. Okay. And so had you been to uni at this point? So this was uh, post-university. So I was actually... I think when I applied for the competition, I had just come back from London. I didn't really know what I was going to do. Before London, I'd done a half of a Bachelor of Media, um, which I'd always been very excited about doing. But when I got into the, the Bachelor program, they were very focused on newspapers, radio and television. And I magazines were my dream. And when I told them that, they kind of tried to convince me to go into newspapers. And so at, at one point I thought, well, no, they're not supporting my dream. I'm going to leave this. And so I quit the course and that's where, you know, ended up going overseas for a year. Came back and I thought, oh, I need to do, I, I need my career. You know, the the writing interest was still there. Mm. Um, and so I sort of looked around and I found a diploma of public relations in Melbourne which I thought was sounded interesting and it actually turned out to be the best base for magazine writing because it was all about short, snappy sentences and selling an idea, selling a product, which is a lot about what magazines are about. Yeah. Um, and so I did that for a year and I really enjoyed that course. I, I probably would have continued and done the advanced diploma, but I got offered the job, so... I moved right. to Sydney. So you were pretty young to move yeah. up there. Did you know many people in Sydney at the time? No one. Oh, wow. No one. I was really lucky. A family friend had a friend living up here. And so they said, look, you can stay with her for a little while. She rents her room out sometimes. So she was in about her 50s, I think. Um, mm. And she was lovely. Hazel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I stayed with her in Wollstonecraft, which was just around the corner from um, where Pacific Magazines was at the time. After a few months, she was like, shall I take you around and show you some suburbs where you might like to live? <laughs> I with think some she, younger people? Yeah, <laughs> with some people your own age. <laughs> Okay, so B Magazine. So you were straight in there, you'd pretty much finished your course and you're straight into work. Was magazines, I mean, you'd said it'd been a dream for a while. So was it all that it was cracked up to be or had the the dream maybe been a bit different? I loved every second of it. I just could <laughs> not believe my luck. And it. I mean, I didn't think twice about moving to Sydney, about the fact I didn't know anyone. You know, I was only, I think, a 20, yeah, 20, 21-ish mm. by the time I moved. Oh, no, sorry, 22. <laughs> yeah. And it was just it was just a dream from start to finish. I, what did you love about it? I mean, I was writing and getting paid for it. Um, I, did, I did struggle at first. The first story I wrote, I still remember, it was called The High Heel Workout. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's a very typical Which... mag headline from back in the day. <laughs> Women's magazines. Um, and I remember thinking, I don't really agree with this angle, right. but, you know, it, it, you write what you're told kind of thing. And I wrote what I thought was a decent story and then my editor completely rewrote it. And it was such a steep learning curve. I'd been such a goody two-shoes in school and <laughs> always got good marks. And so to suddenly have this work completely changed and handed back to me with red pen all over it, I thought, oh, God, what have I got myself into? But that's the best possible way to learn, you know, and over time I got better as a writer and yeah I really loved it. I remember that too I had exactly the same experience at, at B Magazine straight out of uni first job first article I wrote which from memory I think was about natural skincare which was mm -hmm. a sort of up and coming <laughs> thing at the time and same thing I think I'd written it pretty much like an essay from uni <laughs> hadn't quite got the gist of magazine writing at that point and yeah the red because you know 
computers were a thing, I suppose, but everything was still very printed and yes. drawn all over. And yeah, that's still feeling. work that way. I yeah, still right. like to print everything out because okay. you pick up mistakes easier. <laughs> right. So you got straight into your dream industry, I guess. And then you were in mags for a while longer. You went from B to where? Oh gosh. So from B so B folded a year after I joined, which was heartbreak. Again, I thought, oh, well that's the end of my my magazine career. Um but I was so lucky that I actually got a role next door. It was literally the office next door at Girlfriend. Oh, so it was right. a lovely like 360 kind of. That was the <laughs> magazine that I'd read and and really thought this is what I want to do. So to be able to go and give back to them. Yes. was Amazing. (laughs) And what kind of stuff? Were you a features writer or news or what were you doing? So at that point I went into an entertainment writing role, which is also the kind of area I'd always wanted to specialise in. Um, I'd grown up on the street that runs off the street where they film Neighbours in Melbourne. (laughs) So I had a, a fascination with celebrities and had always wanted to sort of be part of their world but not be one of them. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that that was, again, the the dream job. So I've been very lucky throughout my whole career, actually. Each each role I've gone into seems to top the last in ways I never could have expected. Mm. So... Well, that's a good thing. That was definitely... <laughs> that, that was definitely what happened at that moment. Okay. And then I guess that put you in good stead for where we came together at yes. OK Magazine, which, yeah, 15 years ago, that kind of shocks me it's been that long um and have to say one of my favorite memories of you at that time because you were such a demure looking thing you still are but I loved when you would come back the quiet one (laughs) you would come back from a red carpet event and you'd have stories that you'd hurdled barricades or you know pretty much done whatever it took to get a quote from whichever celebrity that was Richard Branson I jumped the barricade at the the red carpet (laughs) Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, he so he was the big the big name celeb that was at that event that night, and my editor, the wonderful Kim Wilson. Um, hello to Kim. Hello, Kim. <laughs> had said, uh, make sure you get a quote from Richard. And he turned up early, which is really unusual for celebs. It was actually his event. It was a Virgin event. Um, they the big names usually come at the end of the red carpet, not at the beginning. They, they sort of you know save the best for last. And he had walked really quickly down and I thought, oh, my God, I've missed him. You know, I I can't let this happen. (laughs) And there was sort of no one else around and I thought, well, bugger it, I'll just jump over the the containment lines. (laughs) And I kind of raced up to him and I got a couple of quotes and he thought it was hilarious because (laughs) that's Richard Branson. Um, But as it turned out, he'd just been turning up early to make sure everything was set up okay. But he hadn't, he was walking later. (laughs) I was very keen that day, but um, but I got the quote. Okay, and so and you had plenty of experiences similar to that, I'm sure. I mean, our whole world at OK Magazine was celebrity stories and lifestyle stuff as well. I was doing the lifestyle pages mm-hmm. at the time, so the travel and the health and beauty and all that sort of thing. But but again, you were still doing your dream job writing, and you know it was a fun industry to be in, right? Yes. 
But then from magazines, you actually went into TV for a while. Mm. So was it Sunrise that you went to Sunrise, first? yeah. Sunrise so on Channel 7. Okay. So I'd interviewed Mark Beretta, actually, the sports presenter, uh, yes. for OK Magazine. Oh, right. And it was the only time at that up until then in my career where a story had been held and it hadn't just been held for a few weeks. It was held for about seven months and we'd done it at home with him and his wife and it was beautiful. But what we didn't know when we shot it was that his wife was pregnant. And so there was this massive drama all of a sudden because it was seven months later and she was now heavily pregnant. So we had to crop photos to make sure that she wasn't, you know, you couldn't see that she had she she wasn't pregnant obviously yeah. and i had to go back to him several times and re-interview him essentially because now we needed to talk about the family right and so he and i got along very well and at the end of it he said you know rach you should you should try and work in television you'd be great for it there's a we're launching a new show called the morning show and there there are a whole bunch of jobs going you should apply and so i put my hat in the ring and um Adam Boland was the executive producer who he was known as the wonderkind of breakfast television and he was incredible to work with. But he he saw the passion I had for the entertainment industry and he took me on to Sunrise straight away. So I became their entertainment producer. Right. Which was a total baptism of fire. Yeah. Going from magazines to TV. They're very different beasts. Yeah, what was that transition like? I mean, the hours are... A lot longer. The pressure's a lot higher because instead of working on a magazine that might, at, at that point, I think when we started on OK, it was a monthly title. So you had all month to prepare. Um, and then I went from that to doing at least two stories a day for TV. And if, you know, you got to four o'clock in the afternoon and your story fell down, you had to find another one. Right. So quite often the hours would, would go over. Because I was entertainment producer, there was an expectation that you go to lots of gigs and events after work, which I loved. But uh, I did it for about four years and I was very tired right. by the end of it. But it was an incredible, it was one of the best and worst jobs I had ever had because um, I met everyone I could possibly have wanted to meet, you know, and mm. from Lady Gaga to Elton John to Pink to, you know, you name it, there's a good chance they came through Sunrise during those four years. Yeah. So, but I guess you incredible. did love, I mean, writing was your thing. So were you still getting to write in that sort of role? Yeah, a lot less. So it was a lot more of a coordination role. I did do the introduction um, for the presenters to read and I often put a little package together of a celebrity's career but it would go no more than about three minutes and it was a different style of writing. You had to write that sounded write in a way that sounded conversational. So if someone was reading it out, it didn't sound like they were reading a script. Right, yeah. So I missed. I did miss magazines. Right. Well, you did go back into mags for a little yeah. while, didn't you, to well, InStyle, was it? I left to go back to magazines. That, that was the, the exact reason I jumped out. Um, and I freelanced for a little while, um, but... I kept getting TV jobs because I'd just spent four years in television. That's what I was known for. And so I actually reached out to InStyle because InStyle was a title I'd always wanted to work for. So I just cold called them. And it turned out that they were looking for a cover for someone's holiday for a couple of weeks. So I went in and I did that and stayed in touch with everyone. And two months later, a job came up. So again, it was luck and timing. And I went in as their features editor. So you're back in your home turf, as it were. Yes. <laughs> Thrilled to be back. 
And then I think was it 2013, a move to Singapore was suddenly on the cards. Yeah. How did that come about? Yeah, so I'd been at the magazine for about two and a half years at that point and in a strange little twist that morning I'd gone in to speak to the editor, Kirsten Galliott, and uh, and say to her, look, you know, I've been here for a couple of years now and I just feel like I'm ready for something new. And uh, And she gave me some really great advice about how to branch out in the industry. And then I got back to my desk and I thought, all right, you know, I think I'm going to take this on board and really run with this. And then my husband rang and said, How'd you like to move to Singapore? <laughs> right. So we'd we'd spoken for a while with his work. He works in the IT industry. We'd spoken for a while about potentially moving overseas, but we'd kind of talked about it for so long I didn't actually believe it was going to happen. And uh, and then this opportunity came up and it all happened really quickly. So within a couple of months we'd moved. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how, how did you feel about the prospect <clears throat> of moving at the time? Were you excited or? Hugely excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we, I think we were both ready for a change um, and it was, you know, why going overseas, why not? Mm. What an adventure. Had you been to Singapore before? Never. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> um, and I gather he would have had work lined up but was it easy for you to get a work visa and things oh, like that? So, no, it works very differently over there. Um, you go over as a dependent uh, which was a very interesting experience <laughs> um, and one of the reasons I was keen to get back into work because everything from your phone, your mobile phone plan to your bank account is all tied up and if you're a dependent, you have to get your husband's permission to, wow. to make changes. So, yeah, being the feisty um, <laughs> feminist that I am, <laughs> I thought this is not going to fly for very long. So yeah, right. Uh, yeah, so I ended up getting sponsored by a company. Oh, okay. To well, work. I'll ask you a bit more about the work side in a minute, but I mean, just in terms of some of the other practical steps of moving and in Mm. such a short space of time, I mean, can you recall just some of the things that you had to do to get ready and go? We were really lucky because we were moving with James's company. James is my husband. Mm -hmm. Um, They actually took care of all the logistics, uh, including moving our two dogs over. (laughs) We wrote that into the contract. I was like, not without my babies. (laughs) You're not the first person to tell me that. (laughs) They're part of your family. Okay. So Um, so the the transition was actually quite easy. They flew us over. I mean, they really laid it on thick. They flew us business class for a couple of days to go and we stayed at the Fullerton, which is a beautiful hotel, um, just to kind of see if we liked the city. And of course we did. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we, we flew back home and then packed our house up and left. Right. So, yeah. And how did you decide where to live? Because you were living in Tiongbaru, which is a really yes. cool neighbourhood. Yeah. So when we, when we did that sort of recce trip, we really had no idea because we never been to the country, didn't really know a lot of people over there. But my husband knew someone from years ago um, and so we actually caught up with them while we were there and they lived in Tiongbaru. And I just remember as we were driving in, it was so different from the rest of Singapore. It's a... Um, a build, uh, sorry, a neighbourhood of Art Deco buildings that are all about three and four storeys high. So no towering condominiums and very much a neighbourhood feel, kind of 50-50% like expats and locals. 
So it had a really great atmosphere and I, I just loved living there. Mm. Um, and you mentioned you knew a, a handful of people in the area. Was it easy to make friends? How did you go about meeting people? Really easy. The expat community is so open and so welcoming. Um, it's kind of unlike anything you've experienced anywhere else. People quickly become family because most people are away from their families. So, I mean, it was different with the locals. I do have some local friends, but I think they're a little more wary because people come and go so often. So they kind of stand off a bit at the beginning. Uh, But the expat scene is too much fun. (laughs) Lots lots of really um, go-getter people. I mean, you don't move to a country you don't know unless you've got a bit of get up and go about you um, and you're a bit open-minded and, you know... And was it people from all different countries or a lot of other Aussies? Uh, it ended up, I sort of had friends from America, um, the UK and Australia mostly. And it, it, that wasn't my intention when we first moved. I really wanted to assimilate. I wanted to make sure that I was in a local neighbourhood at a local job, mixing with locals, eating the local food, because I'd had some opinions before I moved about people moving overseas and not doing that. But what I found over time is that the differences were big enough that it, it could actually be quite difficult to totally immerse yourself in a, a new culture. Um, people didn't get the Australian sense of humour, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, little words that, you know, oh, you dag. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the whole office would turn around and look at me because I worked in a, um, I ended up working in an office that was all local. I was the only Angmo, which means white person. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd sort of all turn around like, what, what did you just say? What does that mean? And even explaining what the word dag means yeah. <laughs> doesn't come across too well. So I found just just for ease of hanging out with people and because we were in the same situation, we're all away from family, we're all out of water a little bit, it just, it was easier to hang out with the expats. Mm. So you mentioned work. You, you did mm. have to find work once you were over there. So can you talk through that process? How did you go about finding work and how easy was it? Mm. So to begin with... Um, when we'd moved, I'd, even before we'd moved, I'd had that conversation with my editor. I was starting to look outside magazines. I wasn't sure if magazines was where I wanted to be anymore. And so uh, when we first moved, my husband had said, look, you know, if you want to take a few months off, just chill out and relax. You've worked really hard, you know, <laughs> like enjoy it. But I got I got bored really, really quickly. Um, and I thought, well, what, you know, here's a chance to totally transform my life. What What do I want to do? And I'd always had a um, an interest in social justice and charity work and that kind of thing. And so uh, there was a Singapore committee for UN women. So I contacted them to see if they took volunteers on and was quite lucky to land a volunteer role with them um, working full time. So I took that project on for about seven months, which was great. It was I met some of my closest friends in Singapore doing that job. We're still friends now. Uh, but I found that the, the role that I ended up doing was very similar to what I'd been doing in magazines. And I kind of realised very quickly that magazines was still where my heart lay. And right. um, yeah, so I ended up looking to a full-time magazine job. Okay. So how did you go? How did you do that? Mm, so I... Looked at the the kind of magazine landscape in Singapore and thought, well, where would I like to work? And at that point, I'd been thinking about becoming a travel writer. That was something that I'd long wanted to do, but never really thought I would be able to do. Um, Especially in Australia, I think I thought, we're so far away from everything, it would be very expensive to travel all the time. You know, the opportunity might not be there. 
and the industry is very competitive in Australia. So being in Singapore, I thought, well, it's a much better base to travel from. You know, already the industry doesn't know who I am, so I'm still going to have to prove myself regardless of whether I go in as an entertainment writer or as a travel writer. So I, I looked at the landscape and there was a company called SBH, which was part government run, mm-hmm. um, and they had the monopoly on the magazine industry. They had the most titles, they had the best titles, <laughs> um, and one of those titles was Singapore Airlines in-flight magazine. Right. And so I kind of looked at that and thought, well, that would be pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, that, that would be the job I'd like if I could choose anything. And so I cold-called them. There's a theme here. <laughs> I liked cold call. Um, and uh, I just said, look, I've moved from Australia. I, I've come from a magazine background. I'd really love to chat to you about whether or not there's any openings going at the moment. And so I sent my resume off to them, waited a few weeks, and then they, they came back to me and said, why don't you come in for an interview and we'll just have a chat. And so during the interview, they were saying, you know, what what kind of work would you be interested in? And I said, well, you know, if I could pick anywhere, it would be Singapore Airlines magazine. And they said, well, that's interesting because there's actually a role coming up. And at that point, you know, I'd done two and a half years as a features editor, so probably ready to step up out of that role. But as it turned out, the role they had was a features editor role again. And this is where I think you sometimes we we are so hungry to climb we forget about the long game and what we really want and and I love being a features editor so I thought well I'll give it give it a little bit longer and use this as an opportunity to go into travel which is what I did um and so what does a features editor do for someone who doesn't know so a features editor uh, would commission stories. So you think about what's coming up in the next issue. There might be a theme or something that you have to work to and you would think about, all right, we want stories on this, this and this. You would maybe, depending on the title, some titles have in-house writers. Previously, everywhere I'd worked had worked that model at Silver Chris, um, the, the magazine, they would hire freelance writers to do their the writing for them. So the, the freelance writers worked all over the world, which was incredible ultimately because I was watching some of the best travel writers work, interacting with them on a daily basis, so seeing how they pitched stories, mm. editing their work, which makes you a much better writer because you see how they do things really well, where there were, you know is room for improvement, that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, that ended up being the most perfect way to kind of change course, I guess. Mm. And what would some of the differences, I mean, you were still in magazines but working in another country like Singapore, Mm. were there noticeable differences? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like I mentioned before, the the Australian industry is really competitive, um, so you have to work hard if you want to stay in the magazine industry. Um, You have to be passionate about what you're doing. And, uh, and at InStyle particularly, I found it was such a strong team, such a creative team. Anyone from the editorial assistant up to the deputy could have been the editor. Everyone really wanted it, was really passionate about it. We'd have meetings where people would all be shouting over each other with ideas, oh, what about this? What about that? You know? And then in Singapore, it's a very different kind of landscape. Um, just Just culturally, I mean, most parents are still kind of in charge of where their kids' futures lie. So they want them to be doctors and lawyers and accountants. They're kind of the three, like, careers you go for. 
So magazines weren't as well respected, which was a bit of a shame because there are some really creative people in Singapore. Um, And so the meetings were very different as well. Just again, culturally, you know, you'd say, all right, who's got some ideas? And there's a concept called saving face in Mm -hmm. Asian culture. And that is you don't want to embarrass yourself or anybody else. So I remember there was one particular meeting where we were trying to redesign the magazine and I said, right, we're going to go through and talk about the pages that work really well and the pages that don't work. Okay, well, you know, give me a page that doesn't work. And no one would say anything. It was like, you know, tumbleweed rolling through. (laughs) And I realised really quickly that this, this is where we think differently. You know, in Singapore you're taught largely to follow rules Mm. and to do things the way they've always been done. Whereas in Australia, it's think outside the square, you know, best idea wins. So there were definitely challenges there. Mm. Mm. And so you were features editor to begin with and then did you end up changing roles at some point? Mm. Yes, sorry, that that probably puts that more in context. (laughs) I ended up, after a year, they promoted me into the deputy editor's role there wasn't an editor working for the title at that time. So it was kind of an editor's role, really. Um, And another baptism of fire. (laughs) So that's that's obviously when we were doing the redesign and when I was kind of leading the team a little bit more. Um, And it's tough. It was tough going from, I mean, I was already an outsider. I was the only white kid in the office Mm. (laughs) Um, and, you know, very different sense of humour, very different work ethic. And so to then be promoted all of a sudden, the people I had been having lunch with, I was managing and that was really difficult. Yeah, Yeah, it was a hard transition. But you obviously did very well at it. So you were there for, (laughs) was it a couple of years? It ended up being two and a half years. Right. Yeah. And then... There was a point where you decided that perhaps you liked what these freelancers were doing. Yes. <laughs> so tell us about the decision to go freelance yourself and what prompted that move. Well, after two and a half years commissioning other people to write and travel, um, I, I kind of became a bit disillusioned. You know, you, people think you work for a in-flight magazine, you must get to travel all the time. Not on that particular title, no. Um, they were very keen to have you in the office, not out and about. And I, I did, if I'm honest, I got a little frustrated by that. <laughs> mm, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> especially if you love to travel. That's it. And I found, especially in Asia, that there was a um, a real lack of good travel writers. A lot of the good the good writers were on staff um, for other magazines. And, uh, and so there weren't a lot of great freelancers. So every time we had to commission an Asia story, it got really tricky. And there are some really great great Asian travel writers, don't, don't get me wrong there, but, but there weren't as many available as there were in other parts of the world like Europe or Australia or America. And I thought there's an opportunity here, you know, I could become a bit of a, a local expert um, because I know how hard it is to find good writers and I know I can write, you know, I've had the training. And so I took the leap and decided to give it a go and was really lucky in a lot of ways, but, you know, worked really hard as well. And and I, yeah, be- became a freelance travel writer. <laughs> wow. And were you nervous, I mean, just about the practical thing of not having a regular income? <laughs> yes, yeah, but in full transparency, you know, we're living in a country which has 15% tax rate um, in Singapore, so very different to Australia. And um, my husband had quite a good job, so he, we knew we could live off his salary um, and he was very supportive of me doing this, so... 
without that support base, I don't know that I maybe would have been able to to go full-time freelance. I Mm. probably would have done it on the side or something like that to begin with and seen if I could have built it up. Right. And did you start getting story commissions straight away or did you have to deal with a bit of rejection to begin with? Mm, You've got a pitch. It's, It's a brutal game freelancing um if you don't pitch you don't get stories I mean it I've been very lucky because I've spent it's now been about three and a half years I think that I've been doing this now I'm starting to get offered stories without having to pitch people are going could you write this for us I mean that that's another dream for me I never expected that I'd get to this point where people are offering me work especially at the beginning, you have to pitch hard, Mm. often, constantly. (laughs) There is rejection. There is a complete lack of any recognition of having received your email (laughs) sometimes. But but when it pays off, it pays off really well. And I can't tell you the number of times that I cold pitched an editor and got a job out of it. Do you remember the first freelance story you did and where you travelled to? Yes, actually. I had heard about this silent retreat in Bali and was fascinated. I thought, well, that's interesting. And I like to do things that are a little bit left of centre. Uh, and so I pitched that the, in, a, in a stroke of, again, good timing and luck. Um, the New York Times was launching Tea Magazine in Singapore. And so they were looking for writers. Right. <laughs> so again, I cold contacted them um, and said, hey, I've got this story idea for Bali Silent Retreat, kind of a first person experience, you know, what what it's like to not talk for five days. <laughs> I can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they, they took it. So not only was it a story that I was interested in doing, but it was also a, a title that, you know, again, wow, New York Times. Yeah, straight off the bat. <laughs> Incredible. So... Right, and yeah. uh, and how did you go without talking for five days? <laughs> well, anyone who knows me knows I love a chat. Um, <laughs> they said to me on the first day, they were like, look, usually people really struggle for the first couple of days and then they relax into it. I went the other way, I think, because I'd come off the back of, uh, you know, a year and a half as an editor. Um, I was ready for a break. <laughs> I was ready not to talk to anybody for a little while, um, just to have a rest. And so the first couple of days I loved it. Um, you know, they wake you up at six o'clock in the morning, you do meditation and then yoga and then there was a break. You'd have, you know, vegetarian food and mm. then the, you'd go back in the afternoon and meditate and do yoga again. But by day, I think it was sort of like the morning of day four, I was like, somebody talk to me, somebody ask me a question so I can <laughs> accidentally speak. I was itching, itching to get out. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> and are you having to cover your own costs generally or are you working through tourism boards and things that are setting these things up for you? Yeah, you can. there's many different ways you can be a travel writer. There are some titles that will not work with you if you take the media trips, the, the ones that are covered by tourism boards and hotel chains and that kind of thing. Starting out, I decided not to invest too much of my money because I wasn't going to be earning a great deal. So I took the the fam trips, the the ones that are covered by other people. But there are two types of fam trips. There's the one where a tourism board or, or other big company will invite, you know, 10 journalists on a trip. And then there is the, the Bali silent retreat angle, which is where I approached the silent retreat and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. You know, would you care to cover my uh, accommodation for the week, in return you'll get a story. Um, But even in saying that, 
I'm always very clear with the the people that I work with that I won't sugarcoat the experience. I won't write a happy, glossy story if it wasn't a happy, glossy experience. Hmm. And I try as best as I can to kind of fade into the background in those places so that they don't fuss around me too much and give me an experience that normal people wouldn't normally get. Yeah, because that's critical, isn't it? Yeah. You want to be able to write with integrity and yes. to yeah, give an authentic experience for mm. people who are reading your stories. Yeah. And your photography is really beautiful. Is that something that you taught yourself along the way? You might remember from OK Days. <laughs> I was rarely without my camera. Um, <laughs> I actually started taking photos when I was eight. Um, I went on a school camp bizarrely a sign of things to come (laughs) and my mum gave me one of those little 24 roll film things the disposable cameras and I was hooked I loved it I think I've always been a storyteller more than a writer Um, and it didn't really matter whether it was visually or with words but the words always won out so I'd never really taken photos professionally until the travel writing came about but I'd always taken photos to the point where you know people would say can you take photos of my kids party next week when you come like just take a few snaps and so I'd kind of been honing the skill over most of my life. I am not by any means as good as the professional photographers who do travel photography but now the, the photography has become part of my work. A lot of places want you to take pictures while you're there. Mm. And by virtue of the type of stories I seek out, you're often in remote places where there isn't a lot of photography available, right. um, so they need you to take photos. Yeah, so you're yeah. offering them the full package then, the, the yeah. stories and the pics to go with it. Mm. And, you know, from the outside it, it does look like a bit of a dream job. Um, you know, looking at your Instagram, it's all very beautiful. <laughs> but I know from my own stint of writing travel stories, it can be a bit isolating. Yeah. You know, you're often traveling on your own. You're not really, you know, you're not there to live it up as such. You're researching, you're gathering info, you're mm. stressing whether you've got, you know, all the photos that you need. I mean, it is still work. So what what are some of the harder aspects of the job that we might not see on your social media? Yeah. I mean, it I preface this by saying it's a dream job in many ways and I'm incredibly grateful for it, but it is tough. Um, Well, first and foremost, you are by yourself. You're not taking your partner with you and or friends with you and on the very rare occasions you might get to take a partner or a friend with you, you're still working and so you're not necessarily doing what you particularly want to do. You're working to someone else's agenda and, and you have to respect the fact that they've given you free accommodation, free experiences, that kind of thing. You can't take that for granted. I did take my husband on one one weekend trip away and he every time we left the villa that we were staying in, the general manager seemed to be there saying, is everything okay? Is everything all right? <laughs> and, and that happens sometimes. Sometimes you don't get the authentic experience. They're so worried about the media enjoying their stay that they can be a little smothering. And, uh, and I said to him, I'm really sorry, but this is not this is not a weekend away. This is work. So he hasn't come on one since. <laughs> oh. Well, I mean, <laughs> but and it's it is the truth tough. of it. Yeah. Um, so, th- so I do. I found it's just easier to travel by myself than to try and take someone with me. I, I know a lot of travel writers who do travel with friends and family, um, and they do it quite successfully. But for me, the days are already quite long. So. The other, the other downfall, I guess, if you can call it that, of doing this job is that we would experience in half the time twice the amount of activities that most people would do 
because again if a if a company's paying for you to be there they want to get the most they can out of you they want you to see the most that you can you know whereas some people might go and do an activity or two in the morning and then lie by the pool in the afternoon <laughs> most days i'm up and out of the hotel by 8 and not back till 10 and i have not stopped all day right. and when i'm doing these really fun things like you know i did a Microlight flight over Angkor Wat, for example. <laughs> I'm in a tiny little open airplane with a parachute wing and a motor mower engine behind me. Oh it was goodness. nuts. <laughs> but I wasn't just sitting back going, oh my God, this is such an insane experience. I was also taking notes and taking photos at the same time and trying to interview the pilot. Right. <laughs> so, whilst not distracting well, him too much. Yeah. <laughs> so, you, you're never really just in the experience, you're always doing those other things as well. So it's, you know, literally don't have enough hands sometimes to juggle everything um, and do the experience itself. So mm. it's busy. It's really busy. Okay. And you do get lonely. And you've had, I mean, I think um, you had a bit of time apart, didn't you? I thought one time you mentioned to me that you had travelled to six countries in six weeks. Yeah. There's, there's been lots of big absences, actually, um, over the last couple of years. So my husband travels for his job as well. He he works for an IT company and, and travels around the region a lot. And, uh, and so we sort of thought originally, oh, it'll be fine. We can just work it so that when he's traveling, I'm traveling, but it didn't really work out that way. You know, the trips come up when they come up, you've got to plan things in advance. And so, yeah, there was a one stint in particular, there's been a couple now <laughs> where I was away for six weeks. And I think we saw each other for two nights out of oh, that wow. six weeks. And that, that's, um, you know, one of the difficulties I've noticed kind of three years in, you know, I, I've keep saying things like, oh, remember that time when we were in this country and this happened? And I was like, oh, oh, no, that wasn't with you. That was oh. on a media trip. Or, oh, no, no, that was, you know, with the guide that I was with. It was just, you know, he and I or her and I or whoever. Um, and so a lot of the memories I've made over the last few years have been incredible, but I, I can't share them with anyone because no one was there with me. So that there's, there's something a little bit sad about that, I think. Mm. You know, that's that's the trade-off. You do a lot on your own. And do you try to balance that? I mean, do you still find travel for pleasure as fun? And do you sort of like having a date night with your partner? Do you have date travel trips <laughs> that you completely <laughs> shut off from being the travel writer that oh, you are? I never completely shut off. I, I stopped taking copious amounts of notes, <laughs> but I still take lots of photos and I have turned, like I've, I've recently wrote up a family holiday that we went on with the in-laws that recently went in for a, a magazine in Canada, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> so it, it's it's kind of that, um, I think it's the Nora Ephron quote, everything is copy, you know. Yes. It, it's hard to switch off when you love what you do. It doesn't feel like work even when it is hard work, so... Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and look, and I know this isn't a travel podcast, but you've been to so many amazing places in recent times. So I did want to pick your brain about that. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm sure picking a favourite place is a bit like picking a favourite child. But yes. I mean, are there some <laughs> recent travel adventures that really stand out in your mind as being incredible? Definitely. There, there are standouts. And usually, because lots of people ask that question, like, where's the best place you've ever been? And it's usually the place you've just been to or the place you're about to go to. Uh, but, but recently, um, I went to Jordan. 
And I'd long wanted to go to the Middle East and that was my first time there and I absolutely fell in love with that place. Mm. Um, What did you love about it? It uh, it is kind of has a bit of everything, you know. Um, it has ancient history. Petra is a site that is truly extraordinary to see. You've got Wadi Rum, which is the desert, which has this beautiful quietness to it. Um, but it was a trading route for, for the spice trade for a long time. And it just, those two things are hard to get your head around. We had a beautiful experience with the Bedouin Um, there where we sort of stayed in a camp overnight and that silence, there's something magical about it. Uh, It has Roman ruins that are extraordinary in Jarash. But I think the highlight for me was actually the people. Um, Obviously in today's world there's a lot spoken about the Middle East, which I don't think is always true. Um, I think that one of the big things you learn about travel is to take things with a grain of salt because they're not always accurate. (laughs) Sometimes there are political agendas under things. Mm. Um, But the people were so generous and so warm and welcoming. And one particular um, incident, I suppose, or one particular example is on one of our last days we were driving, we had a driver with us, and uh, I said, there was a beautiful sunset happening outside the window and I said, do you mind if we pull over and watch it? Because I kind of wanted the driver to watch it as well. Like I thought he should see this too, it's beautiful. And he's like, sure, no worries. So we pulled over and piled out of the car and this family were sitting on the side of the road doing the same thing, watching the sunset, and they came rushing over with cups of tea and they were like, please, please have a cup of tea. And they turned out to be Palestinian refugees and we, with the driver, the driver kind of translated for us. Um, we had a conversation with them and his 19-year-old daughter was there trying to take selfies with filters all over them with me, <laughs> which was hilarious. Um, she was much less interested in finding out who we were, more interested in the photos, <laughs> classic of that generation. Um, but he and his wife invited us back to the refugee camp to have dinner with them. And it was just such a humbling experience because they had so little to give. They didn't even have a a permanent home Mm. and yet they were offering it so freely. And I just thought, at what point ever do you know someone in Australia who's done that for a traveller who's come here? Mm. It it was a very big, big moment for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the beautiful things about your job as well. I mean, Mm. for some of the downsides we might have just spoken about, and yes, it looks glamorous, but really, you know, for me at least, that opportunity to learn about and engage with and, you know, have some of your own firsthand insight into Mm. other people's lives is just, there's nothing more valuable than that. Yeah, and I think the more that you travel, the more you realise there may be slight cultural differences, but we are all the same underneath it all. Everyone wants the best for their family. They all want to work hard and do well by each other. And and I think so much is made of what a big scary world we live in, but the more you travel, the more you realise the inherent kindness of people. You know, everyone, it's amazing the amount of people who will bend over backwards to help you um, when you're lost in a foreign city or, you know, have run out of something. Or, I mean, I still remember being in the worst bath, one of the worst bathrooms I've ever encountered on my travels. And there was no toilet paper and it was just widely known in that part of the world um, that you carry your own. And this lovely woman just handed a whole pack of um, wipes to me and said, you know, welcome to our country kind of thing. And, you know, that's beautiful. 
And where will you be travelling to next? It's a local one next, actually. I'm going to Tasmania for the first time. Beautiful. Um, I'm really excited about this trip, actually, because I'm seeing most of the East Coast. It's a new tour that's offered by a company called Inspiring Journeys. They do luxury tour group holidays. Um, but one of the parts of the trip that I'm most excited about is a new hike. It's a multi-day hike and it's called the Wakulina Walk. I think, I hope I got that right. <laughs> and it's actually led by Indigenous guides. Um, and I believe it's the first of its kind in Australia. So I think although you can go and do experiences like a half-day tour or something with Indigenous guides, I don't believe you can do a multi-day tour. Right. So they take you through bushland and explain how they've lived on it for many thousands of years and wow. the the uses of various leaves and, and berries and food sources that they find along the way. And I think there's so much we can learn, especially now in this, this time of climate change um, and uncertainty. They've, they've been the custodians of this land for a very long time and they know how to maintain it in ways that don't destroy it. Uh, so I think there's a lot of big lessons for us there. So we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and it takes a pretty brave person to venture to some of the places that you go and I think even making the choice to move to another country and switching to freelance life is a brave step. So how have you found the courage to make these big changes and to take on the adventures that you do? This is an almost comical answer but FOMO. (laughs) (laughs) I've always had in me, ask my mum, a thirst to see the world and be part of the world and experience everything. And it's still, I mean, you can probably see in my eyes right now, (laughs) I I just don't want to miss a second. There's so much to do and see in this world. Um, So that outweighs the fear every time for me. And it doesn't mean I don't feel the fear. I've definitely felt it multiple times. There there have been moments where I've thought, you are insane, what are you doing? (laughs) But I'd always rather try than not and I think that's why I've probably got to where I've got to as well because, you know, that kind of give it a go attitude serves people well. So Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, it sounds certainly like, you know, all the cold calling you've done to get jobs and, you know, putting yourself out there has certainly paid off. But, yeah, you have to get over that fear. Well, I think the fear is often in your head. You know, if, if you think about when, when we experience fear, unless you're in mortal danger, <laughs> that's, a, that's a totally different scenario. But too often it's it's actually just a mental game and you're not going to die. And the worst that could happen is someone might say no to you, um, but you, it's not going to ruin your life. You know, it, nothing ventured, nothing gained, you know, give it a go. If someone says no, fine, you dust yourself off and you try again tomorrow. Yeah. It's not as scary as you think normally. Yeah. Yeah. And who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you? I have a long list. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are editors, some of the names I've mentioned, Kim Wilson and Kirsten Galliott, incredible at what they do and and I've really admired professionally. Uh, I have a 93-year-old godmother who has spent more than 30 years running a crafting class for disabled adults and she's you know, infinitely inspiring in that she has endless energy and and endless kindness and their, you know, kindness and generosity are things that I think are undervalued in our society today. Mm. (laughs) Um, And then people I don't know, perhaps, there is a French-American artist called Louise Bourgeois 
She's probably best known for her giant sculptures of spiders. Oh, wow. <laughs> which I never had a fascination with, but I saw an exhibition on her work at a, a gallery in San Francisco on one of my travels. And um, and I was sort of reading up about her and it really changed my whole mind about her work. I think her work's extraordinary now and I think she's really extraordinary. She actually didn't do that work until she was in her 80s. Wow. She lived to be 95. Um, but she spent her whole life toiling away as an artist with no recognition really for a long time and uh, and then her best work was done in her 80s. And I think especially today it's very easy to compare yourself with other people and there's this, I don't know, like I feel like there's this belief that you've got to do everything while you're young. Like the, the mark of success is, oh, she did it by the time she was 30 or, you know, look at Jacinta Ardern, another hero of mine, <laughs> you know, she, she's doing it all and she's done it before 40 or done it before 50. But we're not, it, it's not a, a short game, it's a long game and we have our whole lives to do our best work and you only grow with every opportunity that you have and learn and get better. So there was some comfort I think I found in that, in, in learning her story because especially in my industry, a lot of the people I've worked with have written books by now and I have not. <laughs> and that was always a bugbear of mine. I was like, oh, God, why haven't I written a book? And I'm just not there yet. And it might, might be 20 years before I do get there. But it, it kind of reminded me that it's okay to do it at your own pace in your own way because your best work might still be ahead of you. Yeah. No, I completely agree. This urgency, mm. this urgency that a lot of us feel to get everything done now and we're going to miss out if we don't have it done by X date. I mean, it can be quite crippling mm. when you think the best could be yet to come. That's it. <laughs> Especially, I mean, you look back at your own career. I look back, back at mine, certainly, and I look at that first story for B Magazine and I think about how far my writing's come in more than 15 years now. <laughs> and, you know, they're worlds apart. So imagine what I'll be able to do 15 years from now, I think too often we discount ourselves, like we often discount women in older age as a society. You know, we think, well, your best age is before 40 and if you don't achieve it, then you've missed the boat. But mm. that's not true. Yeah. It's plenty of time. And look, if there's someone out there listening who might be thinking, well, you know, I wouldn't mind trying that freelance life or perhaps having an adventure, living and working in another, another country, do you have any final tips for them? Grab it with both hands and go. You'll never regret it. You'll never regret trying something. Um, you'll always regret, I think, and, and this has been something that's pushed me on as well. I don't ever want to look back and regret not doing something. If I do it and I fail, fine. At least I tried. But I think, it, like I said before, things are a lot scarier in your head than they are in real life. And if you just give it a go, then you're often surprised by what you can achieve. And, and, these things are infinitely rewarding. If you're passionate about writing or you're passionate about travel, if you'd love to live overseas, do it. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today, Rach. Thank you for having me, Jax. That was freelance travel writer and editor Rachel Lees, whose adventures and stories you can follow on Instagram at Lees underscore Rachel. And we'll include a link in the show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. 
What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.